Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to our first uh, education podcast of 2018. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor um, of the education section at the BMJ and I'm joined by Kat. I'm Kat Chatfield, I'm the quality improvement editor. And today we're going to be discussing a few articles which are all sort of broadly connected by the theme of recognising conditions early and intervening um, early to try and improve outcomes. And the conditions that we're going to be discussing are acute respiratory distress syndrome, an article that was published just before Christmas. And another two articles that were published um, before Christmas, uh, were focusing on the early interfa- early recognition, early intervention in psychosis. And finally, we'll be discussing a new analysis article on recognising people who have hearing impairment. So the first article we're going to talk about is the one looking at acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is obviously topical at the moment, given the focus on the winter crisis and the flu outbreak currently in the NHS. Um, and this article essentially was by a group of authors, um, two of whom were uh, professors of uh, anesthesiology based in the States, and one of whom was a patient author um, who was a woman who had an experience herself of ARDS um, and a long stay in ITU. Um, and we actually, we've uh, there's a podcast uh, hearing about the reflections on the article. Um, now, the focus of the ARDS, ARDS article was around how this is a condition that can be easily missed. And in particular, they were pointing to the fact that this is a, really it's a defining condition in critical care. So 10% of people presenting to ITU will actually be diagnosed with ARDS. It's got a high mort- mortality of 40%. But as many as 40% of those people with ARDS can be missed on first presentation to ICU. Um, and they're really advocating for sort of early recognition cat now one of the things that they mention actually is that it's not just in ICU they should be thinking about this condition early but there's a role in emergency the emergency setting and even perhaps in primary care about thinking about whether someone might have acute respiratory distress syndrome I don't know whether you had any thoughts of that about that after reading the article absolutely um I think it's very difficult it's very easy to say oh you know primary care should be doing better at xyz um I think there is uh, certainly some validity in making that point in in this scenario because it seems to me that one of the key messages of this article is is index of suspicion and I think we've seen recently in the UK with the with the big sepsis campaign surviving sepsis campaign the work of the sepsis trust the awareness of sepsis is much, much higher. And so I think people are more likely to think sepsis, more likely to initiate early treatment. Um, and I'm sure we're going to see some improved outcomes related to that. Uh, so I think if, if something similar might happen around ARDS, then that is likely to be beneficial for patients, particularly since um, the sort of message around the treatment for me is avoiding iatrogenic harm. Mm. So avoiding giving high tidal volumes, obviously in secondary care, but avoiding giving high tidal volumes, avoid overloading with fluid, which which you may be tempted to do in someone who is otherwise critically ill and hypovolemic. Um, so I think sort of having that index of suspicion and considering those interventions early for me is, is valuable learning. And I think also the um, sort of... Uh, interventions around positioning um, and prone positioning was also quite helpful, which is not necessarily the case for ventilated patients. You might often see them positioned at a sort of more of a 45 degree angle. So um, so I think there is 
something for, of a role for primary care in terms of flagging suspicion, having being an extra pair of eyes in that patient journey, being another voice that can say, have we thought about ARDS? Mm. Um, and to start raising some of those conversations. Um, obviously, in terms of the diagnostic criteria, we aren't really going to be able to diagnose mm. it in primary care because that requires um, imaging. So that's an integral part of the diagnostic criteria. So we're not going to be able to diagnose, diagnose it. Uh, we're not going to be able to demonstrate hypoxia with blood gases. Um, but we are going to be able to say, look, this is a, a short history, a very acute onset of an other, a patient that we know otherwise to be fit and well. Um, and we've recognised some quite significant respiratory signs um, in primary care. And although there might be an underlying picture of sepsis and infection, you know, we have concerns or I as a practitioner am thinking, could this develop into or be ARDS? Um, and just help a bit with that kind of triage and information overload that happens in A&E. So for me, I think that's the learning point. Um, Although how I might do that compared to saying, well, this person's got community-acquired pneumonia, (laughs) it's quite tricky. But I I think probably the the presence of, of severe hypoxia is what's going to make the difference. And it's interesting that you mentioned information overload, and that's of obviously one of the things they mentioned in the article as well about why this is easy missed and it's really interesting that, you know that actually pointed towards a, a an environment like ICU where you've you know a high high tech environment highly staffed environment that even in, within that setting you know the, the different the information overload the kind of complexity of of the presentation means that you can overlook a condition that's even even when it's known that it can be present in up to 40% of people just you know presenting there um so you know no wonder almost that that there might be difficulty and that there might be those you know difficulty in recognizing it early on in 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 a less high-tech and kind of less well-staffed environment like the emergency setting and that's interesting even when we were discussing it now when I was visualizing in my mind a typical case um I was thinking of a young previously fit adult who who develops a sudden severe respiratory illness and actually they talk about when in the easily usually missed section um they say recognition is is higher when attention is focused e.g younger patients with single organ failure which is the very much the sort of stereotypical patient I have in mind Uh, and actually I think perhaps that drawing out some learning for me there is thinking well you know just because they're an older adult with other comorbidities it doesn't mean that they won't be susceptible to to having this acute inflammatory lung injury um so i I think sort of broadening out my cohort of of patients in which this could be a possibility and, and thus raising the index of suspicion that way one of the other things that really kind of um, struck me listening to the podcast and, and sort of hearing from Cheryl, um, the person who'd had experience of ARDS, she was talking about um, at one point kind of the experience just before she was waiting to be intubated and, you know, how terrifying that was and how terrifying it actually is being unable to breathe, being unable to catch your breath. Um, and she said even as a person who kind of she had been quite a serious athlete uh, in the past, so she'd kind of experienced that feeling of really sort of struggling, pushing yourself to and struggling to breathe as a result of physical exertion, but actually having that in the context of the illness was terrifying. And, you know, how much we think about that and acknowledge that when obviously, you know, you have to you're very concerned with uh, treating and, you know, responding clinically to people who are there in respiratory distress, but really just thinking about how 
terrifying that is as well uh, mm. this symptom of dyspnea absolutely um absolutely and i think um it's interesting isn't it, that in in palliative care we we're quite good at thinking about measures to uh, to um relieve the subjective experience what well, subjective but not right but the experience of dyspnea for patients we're, we're concerned about fans you know airflow across the face perhaps using you know morphine or diamorphine as appropriate to sort of help relieve some of that anxiety and those symptoms um but it's interesting that you know certainly in this article and, and perhaps in practice we're not quite so um conscious of of patients distress in the kind of more curative phase i may be doing our respiratory colleagues um and our icu colleagues a disservice but it's certainly something to reflect on um i, I have a personal experience with the uh, a close family member who suffers with severe anaphylaxis and certainly one of the most distressing aspects uh, for, for that person is the the lack of, you know, feeling of being able to breathe and, and that is by far the most um, stressful part of the whole experience for all involved and for the family watching. Mm. It's it's a very distressing time. So I think paying some attention to that, as you say, is, is important. Um, the other thing that Cheryl was talking about and that came out... W- was this idea about kind of what happens after you're saying in um, ICU with ARDS and what kind of are the longer term effects on people's lives and you know how much do we think about that and certainly for her it was a long process of sort of physio and and kind of trying to get back to fitness and this idea that it was important actually that she go back to you know a graded kind of return to exercise or whatever Um, and just thinking about kind of what and I suppose not just for sort of physical consequences and physical rehabilitation, but also potentially psychological, mm. because we know that um, people who have been in ICU have increased rates of, you know, psychological distress, P- PTSD even in some cases. Kind of what's your experience? Because Cheryl's setting was in the States, actually, and obviously there's a different surface. But here in the in the UK, kind of what is there kind of a... I suppose, a, a pathway or a protocol for people who've been discharged from hospital after long stays in ICU? Is there a consideration for that? Sure. I mean, it's not something that I've come across very much in practice. So I think, um, I don't know whether that suggests a, a lack of knowledge or awareness in my own practice or a lack of provision of services. I think certainly from a physical viewpoint, you know, there is there are graded rehabilitation programmes from sort of deconditioning and um, muscular function. Um, however, I'm not sure there is as much support from the sort of psychological um, mental health side and actually the cognitive side. I was really interested to read about the fact that 24% of survivors of critical illness showed impairment of cognitive function at 12 months, similar to that with mild Alzheimer's. So it's obviously... A really significant um, cognitive impairment and likely to have broad impact across their their um, their work, their their personal life, and also um, on the health of their other family members, which I, I thought was interesting. Um, so I think the timeframes we're looking at there are sort of twelve months post admission, and then up to five years in terms of return to to work and function. I suspect that there isn't a lot of services being provided in that in that space and over that time frame. Um, and it's certainly not something that I consider asking about mm. when I see someone with symptoms uh, of perhaps PTSD. I don't I think of traumatic events. I don't necessarily think of hospitalisation um, or, or stay in critical care. Um, so that's certainly going to to sort of change my practice in that respect. It's certainly something I suppose I wouldn't think 
um, when doing a psychiatric history to immediately you kind of think about traumatic experience in the past and that wouldn't necessarily be something that you immediately think about mm. kind of asking so mm. I think I'm more like to think about um, you know concurrent ongoing chronic illness yeah. as a risk factor for, yeah. for, for depression or anxiety mm. but I think less less to think of previous severe mm. episodes particularly since they might be so discreet mm. um like an episode of ARDS if you are lucky enough to survive it mm. or have the right recognition and treatment um you know it, it feels quite discreet and mm. quite finished yeah yeah um, yeah and so you know to think of long-term sequelae for that at five years on yeah. um as a clinician yeah. is uh, is not necessarily the first thing that's going to come to mind Okay, so moving on to our uh, next topic, an article, which is also about early recognition, but this time early recognition in psychosis and and psychotic illnesses. Um, And really, just like the ARDS article, um, it's advocating for recognising people who are presenting with symptoms early and referring to specialist services early. Um, And this article in particular also points to, to... sort of the that there is actually sort of prognostic um and an impact on outcome by um referring on early so certainly in the first um in sorry as soon as I have an interruption again so um the article um points to evidence from early intervention services and psychosis that by referring early and having this early intervention that can improve outcome and prognosis certainly in the first three years. Um, now again, we, we've had um, involvement of a person with experience, with personal experience of psychosis um, and the podcast, particularly in the podcast, um, David Shires, who is both a GP but also a, a father of um, a, a young woman who was diagnosed with psychosis 20 years ago now. And he's obviously had experience of both her initial diagnosis and being involved in her care for the last 20 years. Um, so he's got a unique, unique perspective in a way with both kind of having kind of clinical experience of caring for people with psychosis, but also his personal experience. And one of the things and sort of the thing that is most sort of striking for me that that comes out of um, both the interview and the article is him just talking about how sort of uncertain, complex, messy um, the presentation of psychosis in young adulthood can be, how difficult that is for the person and, and the family as well and really just sort of how difficult that pathway is um, and as a consequence how much, you know, clinicians and healthcare services can do to try and help with that you know very very difficult period um and in, you know in particular he's talking about in in his personal experience with his daughter you know how difficult it was to kind of detect that when it when it went from just went not just when it went from sort of difficult kind of uncertain symptoms so he talked about his daughter kind of having a little bit of speech delay and then perhaps sort of underperforming at school and things not feeling quite right and he sort of defined it saying as a family we just felt unhappy and how that sort of went on for quite a few months before really the very kind of florid kind of symptoms sort of positive symptoms of of hallucinations etc that became obvious um in his case in his daughter 
and and really he felt kind of perhaps in that period before maybe that that's where there's an opportunity for kind of recognition and stepping in uh and 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 intervention from from the healthcare perspective um from your perspective sort of cat clinically did did you recognize that 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 description and the way he kind of spoke about that experience for him interestingly again I recognize that on a, a personal level um in terms of personal experiences but not so much on a, a clinical level and I was um actually really quite interested in and quite surprised to learn of this sort of um this clinical entity of, of being in the high risk factor for psychosis category um and the authors are very clear that if you feel um I really like this reflective question like would I be surprised if this is psychosis in six months I thought that was a really helpful helpful simple question for for practitioners to ask themselves and I think if people feel that, that they wouldn't be surprised if this developed into something with more positive symptoms more as you say um obvious and overt um, and they're just struggling with someone who's having perhaps some negative symptoms that might be consistent with a mood disorder, but actually are not very typical. Um, and just, you know, this feeling of unease, I think that's a very helpful word, that sort of being not happy. Um, and that sort of gut feeling that actually we do use a lot as clinicians in our decision making. Um, and the fact that that is sufficient to warrant a referral into secondary care even without perhaps those very obvious symptoms or perhaps a very clear picture um, picture of, of psychosis, which is then amenable to psychotherapy. I thought that was really interesting and a, a real kind of window of opportunity. It made me think of sort of pre-diabetes and, um, and given the sort of um, impact of having psychotic symptoms has on someone's life I thought I thought it was something I was really interested in exploring and and will have much more awareness of when I see patients and thinking you know this doesn't feel like a typical presentation you know what else could be going on um, I think that the sort of caveat and this the sort of concern for me around that is that given psychiatry services are so mm. or mental health services are so under pressure at the moment particularly if this is a young adult I mean we know that that CAM services are really um on their knees mm. um and actually sometimes it's very difficult to get children even with a formal mm. diagnosis um seen mm. my worry is that um this provision mm. for this intervention as window opportunity may actually be very limited. Mm. Um, yeah, so a meta-analysis of 28 cohort studies, so over 3,000 patients, identified an early treatment window of nine months for reducing the severity of symptoms. Um, but a meta-analysis of 33 studies um, for people being referred in with a suspicion of um, psychosis, that's... Uh, they went on to receive a specialist diagnosis of high risk for psychosis, but only a third developed a frank disorder over the next three years. So I think there is this real opportunity to yeah. intervene with this group. And like you say, I mean, there can sometimes be that delay between referral and kind of and actually attaining that specialist input. And there still is a therapeutic benefit of presenting the GP, kind of having that support in primary care you know, and from the way David described it, you know, families are struggling with this kind of very much in isolation, not entirely sure what's going on. And even coming, you know, presenting primary care doesn't mean that you're going to get a diagnosis. And actually, that's one of the things that the article discusses is that, you know, often it's it's important not to 
um, you know, rush to a diagnosis. Um, you know, there is going to be diagnostic prognostic uncertainties often for, for a while because it, it, you know, some it sometimes it can take many months, years really to see how sort of people's presentations develop. Yet there's still something about presenting and and the conversations that you can have with people that can offer support i think there's i think um i'm interested to talk a bit more about diagnostic uncertainty in a minute but i think that is helpful and and they put a lot of emphasis on it in this article i think um the line when it says what you need to know psychosis can be a frightening and bewildering experience for both patients and families even as a non-specialist um i think you can help people to make sense of what they're experiencing to do some sort of psychoeducation with families to help them sort of navigate it to help them um, find ways to talk about it and certainly you know there is often the, the negative symptoms which you are probably more familiar with dealing with as a practitioner more familiar with dealing with depression and anxiety and and you know somatic symptoms so you can help with advice on those um, I think you can help with sort of advice about precipitants and stresses perhaps making you know even giving someone a fit note giving them some time out of work if that's a a sort of stressor for them I think there are lots of sort of small ways in which you can help as a GP even if you are in a a real phase of uncertainty um, in this sort of prodromal phase Um, or if you are sure that there is something more like a you know sort of clear psychosis going on and waiting for referral or not meeting referral threshold um, I think there's a lot you can do to sort of hold that family and actually a lot of primary care is about that it's about shouldering uncertainty it's about shouldering risk it's about um, you know helping sort of people to navigate that journey helping patients so I think there there is definitely a role a role there and sort of productive things that you can do and I think actually for me that um it obviously it varies with the experience of the practitioner but the real emphasis in the article um about people who are at risk of psychosis is not about Mm. um medication Mm. which is obviously something that people might feel less able to prescribe in primary care um particularly the antipsychotics or the mood stabilizers so actually you know the sort of emphasis on kind of supporting people through those changes in thinking and thought process and and you touched upon diagnosis and diagnostic uncertainty, and actually, I think that's one of the things the article is quite useful in. Is is kind of talking about that spectrum of, um, you know, people presenting with psychotic symptoms, and actually, one of the things that one of the authors talks about in the podcast is the fact that you know people can present with psychotic symptoms that are part of a, sort of a normal range, and actually, you know, don't need to be medicalised in any way. And it's about whether they persist, and then thinking about, well, is this a psychotic? episode if it sort of lasts for up to a week and obviously again a number of things can precipitate that you know just a very brief episode whether it be substance use stress whatever and in some cases that will be self-limiting and 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 someone will go on and, and not experience further episodes but then there are obviously those people who have symptoms for longer and 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 with time and kind of with involvement of of special services might end up with a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder and and they talk I suppose about prognosis um, and and the fact that that some people with diagnosed psychotic disorder with treatment um, you know 
will may improve and may reach a point where they don't you know they never have you know they reach kind of um they become symptom free and perhaps don't relapse again in future but i think it's important they also touch on the fact there is a patient group where who do you know have either don't respond to treatment or have future relapses and for some people this you know these early symptoms may signal um something that becomes more of a chronic an enduring illness that will you know have an impact on the functioning and and for for, for a longer time and I think you know D- David talks about the experience with his own daughter and it you know her illness has has affected her and continues to affect her today and one of the things that comes up in the discussion with David is hope and and how important that is um when discussing psychosis at, at all points with families because some people might you know, might say, actually, perhaps it's not appropriate to talk about hope because if, you know, for some people there is this risk that, you know, it might become a severe and enduring mental illness. Um, But actually, and I think David talks about this, you know, hope is important for any, you know, patient. And I think it's talking about kind of the hope of possibly improving because, you know, that in lots of patients, their symptoms do improve and, and they do recover. But even for those patients that, you know, don't there's there's hope for some improvement there's hope for i suppose a, a, you know a quality of life that you know that is acceptable for them or i don't know how you feel that kind of relates yes, you to... were i was thinking of the why pit the, what your patient is thinking we published recently on hope and, and motor neuron disease and, and how important that that was from a patient mm. perspective and i think for me um I think the very fact that there's uncertainty means there's hope because, you know, the only thing that can really take away hope is, mm. is a certainty, mm. um, certainty of a, an outcome that, that we might not find to be acceptable. But actually, you know, even hugely life-limiting um, or life-impacting outcomes happen to people all the time and people are incredibly adaptable and resilient and able to you know, uh, adjust and modify and, and change expectations. And, um, you know, that, and I, I think obviously psychotherapy has a big role in that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of a, a very hopeful practitioner. Um, and I think, I think that's very, um, I think it's very important to share that, share that with patients. And um, I think it's, it's all too easy when faced with something that is frightening and as challenging as, as something like psychotic symptoms or, you know, whatever kind of severe severe health problem to um to catastrophize and you know to 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 feel very bleak um and I think you know what what we can do to sort of uh, alleviate that and, and to sort of give hope is, is is really really important um so I think for me you know I would always um focus on the the positive side which is that actually a lot of people do respond to medication we have a huge range of medications that can work um you know there are treatments for people who are treatment resistant um you know and we know that there is a good evidence base for improvement um and we know that a lot of these disease courses are sort of a relapsing and remitting even if they are a chronic problem so you know there there is sort of um yeah i would i would definitely emphasize hope so one of the other sort of stark shocking things that comes up in the article is about reduction in life expectancy yeah. um, of people with psychosis reduced 10 to 15 years below that of the general population. And actually 70% of excess death is explained by physical health consequences. Um, you know, primarily, you know, risk of sort of cardiovascular disease, the effects of diabetes. Um, 
and the very end of the article kind of it, it points to the challenge to both you know primary and secondary care of working together to try and you know manage this risk and and make sure that people are not subjected to these you know or, or try and prevent this risk even you know at a very early stage of the illness you know people are being diagnosed in their teens in their early 20s um and there's an opportunity at this point perhaps to intervene putting that challenge to you know in how how can we overcome that challenge <laughs> I'm not sure overcome yeah. is, is the right word but I mean I think I think you know cardiovascular risk modification we we know how to do it mm. um and I think again thinking about the ARDS mm. discussion and thinking of oh you know what is the typical ARDS patient and it it's going further in our thinking and, and not thinking who is the typical patient that needs cardiovascular risk mm. modification oh it's you know a man in his 50s or 60s um it's and actually thinking these patients fit into that category they are patients who are more likely because of the etiology and the risk factors for developing these symptoms and these disorders they're more likely to have socioeconomic disadvantage they're more likely to smoke you know they're more likely to already have cardiovascular risk factors in place plus then they're likely to have medication um, that increases those risk factors um, through weight gain and, and other mechanisms plus they're likely to have um, you know generally a more difficult <laughs> stressful life and probably to be less organized more chaotic um, so there's multiple things going on for these patients and I think really to just try and be cognizant of those very from a very early stage um, and think okay you know this person's just started on you know for example a mood stabilizer or an antipsychotic we know that they're likely to gain weight what can we do to mitigate that and how can we turn that into part of their recovery how can we make self-care um, you know positive for them we know that exercise helps mitigate a lot of negative symptoms in mood disorders and you know depression uh, so how can we incorporate that into their recovery plan and make sure that we're then sort of preventing things further down the line how can we be more proactive with their risk management from a much earlier age um, all of which is I think laid out well in, in the article yeah, and, and as, as, as it says it's it's that's an issue as much in primary care as secondary mm-hmm. care you know in patients kind of thinking about the levels of kind of inactivity lack of opportunities for exercise and even within kind of your consultations in secondary care how often do you ask about kind of people's act you know ability to exercise or activity levels and how are you thinking about enabling that as much as you're thinking about what will I be doing with my you know what what, what are we doing with the medication on this um, appointment um, I think medication is interesting because I think there is um an understandable feeling of resentment amongst many primary care practitioners that um, medication is is sort of initiated in secondary care and then sort of handed out for primary care to monitor and follow up and um, there's sort of a sense of a lot of workload that doesn't really belong in that in that sort of situation Um, and I that's and that is true in a lot of cases and or even if it's not true it's understandable um and I think sort of trying to get beyond that with these patients and instead of thinking these patients need their cardiovascular health monitored because they're on this drug and I didn't initiate that drug 
it's not my responsibility, mm-hmm. but try to think about their cardiovascular risk in a much more broad, patient-centred way and think, actually, they are a person who has multiple risk factors for cardiovascular disease and excess death related mm-hmm. to it. The medication is but one of these. Mm-hmm. And my responsibility to them as their holistic practitioner mm-hmm. is is to help them manage that risk. And I am, you know, it's that phrase that GPs hate, best place to do it. Mm-hmm. But actually, in this case, I think we are well placed to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, that that is a really important um you know, it's mortality and morbidity where we really can make a difference with evidence-based interventions. I think we're on to the and finally part of the podcast. So, and finally, we'll be discussing the analysis that's come out in this week's BMJ on adapting for hearing loss to improve care for older adults. Um, Do you want to give us a sort of summary Yeah, so this is an article by Jan Blistein and colleagues, um, and she actually uh, has hearing loss herself. And she sort of sent a really interesting sort of overview of how actually um, we don't always consider impaired hearing in clinical situations um, and how much it can have an impact on um, communication and patient care. Um, I was really interested to see not just how common it is. So in the US data... Um, 81.48% of those aged 80 years and over have a sort of somewhat disabling loss and um, almost half of a population aged 60 and over have clinically significant hearing loss. So, you know, really common common problem. Um, so, so that's sort of taken initially, so how much we will be meeting people who have clinical hearing impairment and who, and I certainly am not really addressing that with those patients Um, and then also I think the really helpful thing for me was to think about how much we're asking and inviting patients into situations which are difficult listening situations I found that really helpful and I don't think anyone who's ever worked in a clinical environment will struggle to recognize the idea of a difficult listening situation because you experience it as a practitioner um, and I'm sure there must be many colleagues who have hearing impairment who are struggling with difficult listening situations um so i think you know outlining those and um methods to improve communication like hearing assistance devices um uh, various apps on a phone smartphone that can be used um just positioning with the patient um being aware of the ambient noise trying to find spaces with with better uh, levels of ambient noise um I think those are some really practical suggestions um, and, and also the question which I really liked, which is how can I help you to hear? I thought that was a really helpful question. Well, just looking, because you mentioned, you know, they, they do point to the fact that how little kind of we actually think about it and think about um, difficulty patients might have with hearing and they point to one a recent systematic review of studies specifically on communication between older patients and doctors and hearing wasn't even mentioned in sort of up to 75% of those papers. So not even considering the fact that hearing he, hearing loss might be impacting on communication between doctors and old, old patients. I thought that was really indicative of, of, of obviously what's happening. And quite often you'll, you'll, you might see it documented in someone's notes that they have um, hearing loss and it be there. But quite rarely will it actually be... Um, specify kind of the degree of the loss and in the paper it was was interesting seeing the table showing kind of 
mild, moderate, severe, but particularly what that means, what the consequences are kind of in a clinical environment and how useful that would be, you know, when, you, when you're communicating with a person to think kind of what types of situation, you know, might they struggle with, with the degree of hearing loss that they have. So, you know, someone with profound hearing loss, they may, you know, be able to perceive vibrations, but really very little else. But, you know, someone with mild hearing loss, you know, they'd be okay in ideal situations, but like you say, you know, in a, in a busy ward with lots of background noise, maybe more difficult. So really to kind of think about those different degrees and the way that we do with other conditions. So you, you know, you would, you would classify someone according to their heart failure or otherwise. But I think in my experience, rarely will you, you know, might you see that with a patient that you were seeing sort of in clinic on the ward. Yeah, and I think the other thing for me about that is that um, people may not be aware until they're put into a sort of challenging listening environment, they might not be aware that they have um, a degree of hearing loss that is worth mentioning. Mm. Um, because, for example, if you have um, sort of mild sort of hearing impairment, then you, if effectively it may not cause a problem for you most of the time. You may have never seen an audiologist. You might not ever consider yourself to be hearing impaired. You might see this as a normal factor of getting older. However, when you then get put into this hostile environment with the, you know, background noise level of 60 to 69 decibels, which they notice challenging even for someone with normal hearing, mm -hmm. suddenly it becomes an impairment. Um, so I think, you know, um, relying on the records, relying on, you know, questions like, do you consider yourself to have hearing loss? is not particularly helpful, as opposed to, I think, again, just simply asking people, can you hear me? <laughs> you know, how can I help you? Yeah if if you can't and I, I don't I don't tend to ask that question of patients and even in a situation when you're aware that communication is is not working very well and you feel like they're not comprehending you or they're not taking on board everything you're saying I, I rarely think I wonder if they can hear me mm. to, as an an explanation for why mm. why we're having trouble communicating um and and obviously it, it doesn't just have implications for the person's experience but in terms of you know situations where you might need to gain consent it's clearly going to impact the validity of that um absolutely and they've said that you know people aged 70 or over with hearing loss have more admissions to hospitals than those with good hearing um and people with hearing loss gave significantly lower ratings to their quality of care so it obviously is impacting on their quality of care um, and the authors say whether this is communicating communication related is not yet clear um, but it's certainly not it's a reasonable inference so that's all for this time thanks very much for joining us we'll be back again soon with another education roundup you can find all these articles on the bmj.com that's an easily missed article on acute respiratory distress syndrome clinical update on early psychosis for the non-specialist doctor and just out this week an analysis on adapting for hearing loss to improving care for old adults you can subscribe to us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and you can find our whole back catalogue too including all our past education roundups thanks very much for listening goodbye from me and goodbye from me thanks very much for joining us <laughs>